Hey everybody, Mary Fran Bontempo here. And before we get started with this week's episode, did you know that Brilliantly Resilient can come directly to you? That's right, we have keynotes, programs, presentations, workshops, all available to companies, associations, conferences, and organizations, either virtually or live in person. So head on over to brilliantlyresilient.net at the speaking tab to find out more. And while you're there, you can also sign up for our weekly Brilliance Bit, which comes to you once a week directly to your inbox and has a bit of brilliance from this week's show and will keep you living in a brilliantly resilient mindset. Okay, let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Brilliantly Resilient Podcast. What's your train wreck? Everyone has one. The question is, are you going to live there or are you just visiting? Let's check in with Mary Fran and Kristen to learn how to come through not broken, but brilliant. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Brilliantly Resilient Live. I am one half of the dynamic duo of Brilliantly Resilient. I never know which way to point with my camera with these things. I am Mary Fran. Kristen is not here at the moment. She is off doing some work with her brilliant global nonprofit for uh, CRB1 research. But I have a great co-pilot today. And I am welcoming Kristen McGinnis to the show. Kristen has had 20 years of publishing experience. She just wrote her first novel called Live Through This. She is also the publisher of Rise Books and the founder of Rise Writers. Kristen's mission, I I just love this because I love stories, is to help people write stories with the power to heal and liberate the world, which helps to build roads towards compassion, justice, and change. So Kristen, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, glad I was able to blot the lipstick before we began. So <laughs> so for everybody, you know how we roll here. Everybody who's a regular listener and viewer of the show. we When Kristen and I first jumped into the Zoom room, she was blotting lipsticks. But I thought she was eating a Pop-Tart because that's yeah. where my mind goes. Right yeah. to food. <laughs> it's always about food. So and now you're going to make me crave a Pop-Tart all day. I know. Long. I'm thinking the Maybe same thing. I want to go get a Pop-Tart. <laughs> And a, and a husband grabbing something behind my back. So, <laughs> well, like I said, we are we are very conversational and casual here because we have all we have been through it. We have been through yes. it. So Go we on. welcome anybody and all their stuff. Yeah. All the interruptions. There you go. We're good with that. Well, I'm so, glad to be here, and thank you for having me. I want to talk about clearly. I want to talk about your book because the thing that that really interests me. Well, a lot of things about it interest me, but it's it's a modern Western in suburban LA. It's set in there. But mm-hmm. before we get into that, I want to talk about Rise Books and Rise Writers. And you, in, in my doing my due diligence for you, I came up with a quote that you, that you made, and it says, storytelling is a Trojan horse with our activism inside. I just love that. And you talk about how you want people to see story through a socio-political lens. So tell me about, first of all, your inspiration in terms of seeing story as a vehicle for change and how that then manifested in your companies and then how that's manifested into your novel. So let's follow the chronology of that. 
<laughs> All right. Uh, I mean, it is a long chronology, so I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. But I, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I'm somebody who um, I've always been deeply connected to issues around justice and injustice. Um, and uh, and I don't want to derail us entirely because we could spend 30 minutes certainly talking about this. But uh, my father was a marijuana smuggler back in the 1970s who was <laughs> Uh, who was sentenced to 66 years in prison in 1980 with no chance of parole. And um, he ended up serving 20, at some point that sentence was reduced to 33 years. He ended up serving a full 20 years in prison um, for nonviolent, nonviolent. Um, and so my childhood, he was, um, he was arrested when I was three, ultimately sentenced and went away when I was, you know, around five and a half. And then, um, so I grew up, uh, you know, without, without my father and with a sense and with a knowledge that what had happened was a miscarriage of justice. I mean, there was no question in my household, um, though, you know, my mom might've disagreed with him as like a husband. He wasn't a particularly good one. He was a, he was a nice guy, but a bad husband. And, um, and so, but nonetheless, like nobody, I mean, everybody was horrified by that sentence. Oh. Um, and so, uh, and that sentencing had come around um, with President Reagan. Uh, he had begun to use racketeering charges, RICO charges against smugglers. And so they were able to use these like huge sentencing restrictions that had never been available before 1980. Um, and, um, and so I think from there, like I've just always carried this weight around, you know, injustice in a really personal sense um, and wanting to um and wanting to both fight injustice but also trying to figure out the best tools to do that because i've been a part of you know politics and marches and nonprofits and um i i've never been in politics i don't i don't know that that's where it, the the changes are made but for some you know for some i think there's some good idealistic politicians out there certainly um and uh and i just have always felt like storytelling was actually the most powerful it was the one that was both the easiest to do and the easiest to scale. And um, and no matter who we are, usually if we have the desire to write, we are writing from a place of someone who has experienced pain or hardship and someone who has had to overcome that. And I think that is always a story of justice to me and of justice being served in some way. So it's interesting that you say that because as you are, um, as you can see, I'm, I always scribble notes when I'm speaking yeah. to people because I want to remember all these gems right at the, right at the get-go. But what I, what I wrote down here was activism born of pain before you just made that, that point. Yeah. And the thing that fascinated me about this story is that there's so much yelling going on these days about how to how to solve our problems what 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 when what we end up doing is basically just yelling at each other and this idea of story mm -hmm. as a way to first of all not only make a point but in a way to emotionally connect with people and do you think that that is an essential part of this process that you have to make people feel something yeah, I mean, I think it's that idea of like, you know, walk a mile in someone else's shoes, you know, um, and and the idea and with a book, you know, you walk 300 pages roughly in someone else's shoes and you get to put on their skin, so to speak, and see what it's like. And I think it's a much gentler approach to begin to guide somebody to a, a wider lens of understanding. I mean, I think that's why book banning is such a popular topic. The idea isn't mm. that we 
that we're afraid of these things. The idea is that people understand that if you're reading a story, you might have compassion, empathy, and then an, and then an alliance with that person or um, or with that population or community. You know, and so I do think that's why books have always been banned is because we recognize that story connects us and um, and through that connection, it can be a real driver for change. So. Uh, so, yeah, that's why I feel like um, it's not only a really, you know, lovely tool because we get to have our own healing and creativity and just the joy of writing. Um, but storytelling really in most guises is a political tool. It's just we get to decide if we if we put the oomph in it, <laughs> so to speak. You know, this is such an interesting conversation for me because I, I think what I've, I've always felt these things, mm-hmm. but I don't know that I've ever heard it articulated in, in such a way. And, and I, I think you're exactly right with the whole book banning idea. People are afraid that the books that are being banned or the ones that they object to, uh, they see that they're presenting a different viewpoint mm-hmm. and that creates a a fear, a very real fear. And maybe particularly because it comes in that kind of gentler backdoor way. So, I mean, do you think, do you see that? Do you see that that's um, maybe one of the reasons why people have that concern? They want to shout, they want to make their point. But when you touch someone emotionally, often that point is deeper, is made in a deeper way. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't think anybody thinks that if you read a book, it's going to, quote, turn you gay. But what it might do is offer you a place of compassion, empathy and connection with somebody who identifies as gay. Right. And so I think that is the fear. Right. And that is the fear that through that connection, uh, your perspective will be widened and your mind might be changed and you'll become an ally or you'll begin to stand up for somebody's rights, even if they're not your own. Right. And that is what. I think that is the gentle way that stories move us and they move us towards and not all. I mean, obviously, it depends who the author is and the and the point of the story. But I think that if a, and that's what I do. I mean, I've been a book coach for a number of years and I mean, I don't I mean, politics was I don't hide my politics, but I also don't hide the fact that, like, I view everything through that lens. And so when I work with somebody on their book, um, you know, I recently uh, one of my long term clients she came to me years ago and she was writing a book. She had been in um, MLMs, multi-level marketing pyramid scheme, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and she was very high up. She was like one of the highest ranking people in this organization. She did very well. And what she re- and she actually got sober during that period because she, you know, probably already been a social drinker. But that world just led to so much horrific drinking. She famously got a DUI on the way home from her own car party when she like won the Lexus or Mercedes or whatever. And, um, and, you know, she had five kids at home and it was a, it was a really horrific situation that ended up occurring. And so she wanted to write a book about her time in MLMs. But as we began to really look at it, we began to see that this wasn't just a book about MLMs. This was a book about how MLMs really engendered this cult thing. And how that cult thing then was really connected into a lot of the, you know, COVID denying and QAnon and like it, how it builds, right? And how um, the how this idea of even like sisterhood with especially white women and white supremacy and how it was sisterhood based on sales, right? It wasn't it wasn't genuine. You were only sisters if you were selling well, um, and so. 
Um, and so we began to really take the book away from, even though her personal story is in there and the, you know, everything she lost and the devastation to her family and, and ultimately she gets out of the MLM and how it's like leaving a cult too, because you lose all your social connections. And, um, and we, we use a lot of that psychology in the personal story, but we also talk about the systems of white supremacy and the systems of sort of capitalist sisterhood. And so, um, and the economics and, and how the economics and the social, like, it goes back to like being middle school girls, right? Like who's popular, except for this time, you can buy your way into the popular seat if your husband makes enough money. And so we really got into like the, the deeper, darker side of what could have just been a light story of like, I was in an MLM and it didn't work. Right. And, um, and so I think that as a book coach, that's always uh, been when people come to me, I always bring that lens to it. Uh, like, OK, this is a great personal story, but what are the sociocultural and political implications of what you've been through and how do we make those connections while still keeping it entertaining? I mean, you know, the driving, getting a DUI on your way home from the car party, you know, as horrible as it was when she was in the experience is obviously highly entertaining when you're reading about it years later. So Absolutely. And, you know, it's so interesting to hear you say this because I I wrote a book called The 15 Minute Master a, a couple of years ago about my son's experience as a heroin addict and then my experience as the mother of a heroin addict but to your point it started out as one thing and gradually as you think about it and you think about and I think maybe this is why people are driven to write stories and and maybe you'll agree but as you begin to think about your personal experience if you can pull back the lens you see this not as individual threads in a tapestry, but in the tapestry as a whole. Yes. What are the bitter, what are the bigger implications here, first of all, to your life, then expand it a little further to your family's life? And then even further, how does this fit into the bigger scheme of what's going on in the world? And it happens, all those things that you <clears throat> that you were talking about can come to us in, in different, you know, different formats, different forms, that desire for belonging, you know, the, the, the women that you're talking about with buying their way into something. Well, my son was trying to belong in his own way. You know, that's how that affected him. But I think at their heart, a lot of these stories, and this is where the connection comes in, have their grounding in our need to belong in our need to want to be a part of something bigger Unfortunately, a lot of the forces that also recognize that can use that against us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think um, and I think you're right about like the thread in the bigger tapestry. And I think that as we begin to storytell, you know, we might start with this this one personal story. But then you realize, you know, I mean, there's always the human need and then there's like the systemic obstacle. Right. And so it's about being able to identify, okay, the human need is real. I mean, the human need to connect and belong is what has kept us alive and kept our species going for thousands of years. Right. I mean, if we didn't work in a group, um, Mm -hmm. if we didn't become tribes, uh, if we didn't protect each other and, you know, someone goes hunting and someone watches the babies you know, we would not have, uh, we wouldn't all be here today. And so that's a deep human need for survival. And then there is a system that, you know, one tries to control that or exploit it or limit it because it is so powerful in whatever ways, um, you know, systems are built 
not for our benefit, but for the system's benefit. And so I think that, um, and I always say like, you know, conspiracy theories be damned. I mean, I, I have a business and I have like a strategy for that business and I have a plan for that business and I have like goals for that business. And if I was running the world, like I wouldn't have the same strategies, plans and goals. Like, like, like those people, they're not smart enough to put that together. I mean, I think they, I mean, I have a small little business doesn't make that much money. You know, I mean, I'm not running the world. And if I can put those basics in, I'm sure they'd have too, right? And so there's a way to run a world geared towards profit and domination. And there's a way to run the world towards gentleness, love, and community. And I think that most of us crave, no matter who we vote for, right? We crave gentleness, love, and community because that is the human instinct. And so I think storytelling is about showing that human instinct um, despite the systems and other forces at play, but not ignoring them. And so I think that's the Trojan horse, right? That's the Trojan horse of the writing is that we're talking about love and belonging and humans go, being human, you know, and, but we're also not ignoring that there is a dark cloud on the horizon that we are constantly trotting into. And so we have to, um, we don't have to, a lot of people don't necessarily choose to make those connections in their writing, but but I certainly do. And um, I think that's to me the most powerful writing because you all of a sudden are like, oh, I'm reading a family drama and isn't this sad or isn't this wonderful or isn't this funny? And then, oh wait, now it's shifting how I'm thinking about the world and making me wonder maybe there's a different way to do this, so. So is that the main conflict at the end of the day that you see that the, in the way the world works, we're getting really philosophical here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we come a long that way from Pop-Tarts. Um, yeah, we went from Pop-Tarts to the, the philosophical conflicts in the world. Well, there's a place for everything. You know, that's the way yeah. I'm looking at it. Especially Pop-Tarts. <laughs> but do you, do you kind of see that as the, the, at its at its most basic, the the conflict that we are constantly battling against this these systems that have been in place for quite honestly most of it is profit mm-hmm. against what battling against the human needs which by their very nature are much more basic than what we a lot of people aspire to and go after in that profit so. Does that tend to be at its heart, the basic conflict that we all find in our own stories in some way or another? I think so. I mean, I think, you know, I think there's always a dragon in every story, right? And I mean, I think the dragon can always look a little different and it's not always a a sort of like a a system at play. But when we look at a lot of our social societal ills, I mean, they can all be, I mean, it, I'm in recovery myself. And um, and I see every day where addiction is a product of trauma and trauma is usually a product of systemic forces. I mean, trauma usually occurs because people are under stress. People don't have enough resources to take care of themselves. People are in uh, situations that if they had resources, they would otherwise be able to change them. You know, I mean, there's a lot that goes into what builds trauma. And I mean, I always say this, I remember years ago, I was actually studying abroad 
uh, well, I was doing a master's program in Paris. And then we did this like month long journey to India and to go work for NGOs in India. And it was two groups. It was a group from Sweden and it was a group, well, it was the Paris group, but we were all pretty much American. So it was like 10 Swedes and 10 Americans. And it was a very stressful trip. Like there was a lot of things that went wrong. Like India can be stressful under any circumstances, but this happened to be, I mean, the, the people that wasn't the normal person running it, like he left, like the guy who was supposed to be like our guide, like took <laughs> off on us. So it was just like us, like trying to figure it out. And, um, and we weren't, and we just weren't also used to like certain, like, you know, conditions that we probably should have been, but we weren't. The Swedes come from a society where they are taken care of, right? Where they don't have the daily challenges that living in America does because they have a social fabric that takes care of them. They have a social fabric where they can, they're never going to be unhoused. Um, they always know they can turn to their government for aid and not in a way that keep, they all work. I mean, it's not like they're just sitting around on the dole, like mm -hmm. they are working, but they have a social net underneath them that allows them to move through life without the fear, trauma, and stress that most Americans live in every day, every day. Yep. You know, unless you just have like infinite resources, but even people, I mean, I know plenty of wealthy people who are still stressed to the brim, right? Because there's always like, cause there's always something, right? There's always something in this country. And we went to India and the Americans were melting down. I mean, we looked like candles. Like we were just like, and, and the Swedes were just like getting up and taking care of it every day. They were just like calmly processing the challenge, managing it, resolving for it, and then having a lovely lunch. And I looked over and I was like, that's the difference right? Like that's the difference of, of being in a, of being in a culture where you're not at war with systemic forces every day, but rather the systems have been built to protect and uplift you. And in America, that's not true. And, um, and as we see there, the rug is always being kind of tugged out from underneath us. And I think it, it just engenders more trauma, right? And engenders our, our ability, or rather it impacts our ability to appropriately respond to stress. And so anyway, we have gone way off of storytelling. Um, <laughs> but I always sort of knew in that moment, like I remember sitting there literally watching them eat lunch while like three Americans are like sobbing and they're just like, oh, the sandwich is good. And, <laughs> and I was like, that's the difference. And I do think that if we aren't writing about it, if we aren't talking about it, then it won't ever change. And I think there is a better way to be. I think there is a better way for us to be able to live in love and community and gentleness. And, um, and yeah, and I do believe that our writing can bring us closer to that. So there we go. I tied it back in. Well, I, I totally, I, I mean, I totally agree. And that's just a really interesting perspective that when we're not scrapping for our basic needs and when we're not worried about our basic rights being, you know, removed, yeah it does put you in a different mindset. But again, those are topics that people talk about these days, but we talk about them with anger. We're always banging heads with each other. So this idea of, of, of hitting people or telling people a story that gets them to that point, but humanizes it and puts it in the realm of, you know, people's actual experiences is really a better way to make the point. So now, then I watch the segue. We're going from yeah. pop tarts to philosophy okay. to now your book because that's exactly what you do. You take a subject in that book that is challenging for a lot of people, but you humanize it. So 
I want to know why you wrote this book, why you chose this topic, and I want to talk about the book. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, most Americans live in some level of concern or fear around gun violence, um, even those that support gun rights. I can't imagine if, you know, all the more reason, right? I mean, every, I mean, especially if you're a parent, um, whether you believe that you should have that. And I actually don't, I mean, I'm, I actually have no issues with people's right to own a gun. I just don't think we need to have this many guns. And I don't think we need to have guns that are weapons of mass destruction. And I don't, um, and I was recently on like a, a pretty big podcast with somebody who's got a, like, he's got a mixed crowd, but he does a lot of interviews with people in the military and a lot of law enforcement. So you can imagine that a lot of his listeners probably swing towards the more like gun crowd. And I, and I said, like, I mean, I myself know enough about weapons to know that if I have an invader in my home, I am not pulling out an AR-15. That is not, the, there's a reason why police do not walk around with AR-15s, especially in America, because because uh, we sue people here. And <laughs> if you fire that weapon, you do you cannot control for where that bullet is going to go. So you're not gonna spray an AR-15 in your home with children to protect them from an invader. You're going to pull out a you know, nine millimeter weapon like most, you know, whatever police issued Beretta, right? Like that's the that's the gun most police carry because it has the best aim. And no matter who you are, you probably aren't going to be able to aim that great anyway under those circumstances. So you want a gun that's easy to use. So your number one reason to have a gun, which is to defend your home, presumably, the only real legitimate reason other than it's fun hmm. um, or I like them. But like the legitimate reason of like, you feel like you're in fear. And ironically, you know, most most people who live in middle class or upper middle class communities don't actually count because we have the lowest level of, you know, property crime and home invasion or burglary that occurs while we're in the house. Right. Like that doesn't actually usually happen in middle to upper middle class neighborhoods and certainly not in wealthy neighborhoods. That's in low income neighborhoods. Um, so I, I don't want to take guns away from low income neighborhoods that actually need to protect themselves, but nobody needs an AR-15. Um, and it's a weapon that's used way too frequently in mass shootings and especially with children and but with anybody, right? It doesn't matter, obviously, how old you are. You, you should not be dying uh, because of any kind of shooting or any kind of gun violence. Um, and so I just don't think like there's in a, in a world where logic at least should rule, there's no real logic to that. Um, and so uh, to me, that's why, I mean, I felt that way just politically, but it became much more personal, I guess, in a way um, in 20, I mean, I had a, a family member who was actually shot and killed by a coworker uh, in 2014, I was pregnant with my daughter um, and it was kind of like a, a horrific gun violence hitting home situation. But then in 2016, I, you know, I had a baby and like everybody, right? Like having a child changes everything. Like the preciousness of life just becomes really crystal clear. And obviously from your story, you're aware of the pain and the fear around losing a child, right? And um, and how you just wake every day with that. And so um, when 2016, 2015 rolled around, there kept there were a lot of mass shootings that year. Um, I mean, there's always a lot, but I do feel like they almost feel like seasonal, like it's hurricane season and it's mm -hmm. like mass shooting season where you're like, oh my God, it feels like every week. And then it kind of goes quiet and then it picks back up again. And, um, and so we were in one of those seasons and the night of the pulse shooting, I was laying on the couch with my then one-year-old daughter who's now eight, but 
Um, I was laying on the couch with her and I was reading, you know, as it was sort of like live time happening. And I was like, what can I do? And um, I had already been thinking about writing a book like about a marriage. And I was basing it on, on my marriage. Anybody who reads the book, you know, most debut novels align pretty closely to the people who are writing them because you're not quite ready to leave reality yet. You know, <laughs> you're like, okay, if I could just like base some of these characters on people I know and and then I could do whatever I want with them because it's not like they can say to me, hey, that's me. And you're like, no, it's fiction. Um, so I started to, I had already started kind of playing with the characters that were naturally in my life. My, um, like my husband's uh, brother is trans and I really like, and I've been, uh, you know, we've both been part of his transition for years. And, um, and I, and I wanted to write about that, especially within my, you know, my husband is Greek and his parents are, were immigrants, my husband's first generation. And, um, and that's obviously a very hard thing in that community to like understand and accept and support um and so I'd already started playing with those ideas and then my own you know my husband and I in our dynamic and then that night I realized you know like one I actually wasn't even thinking about a story I was just thinking like what would what would happen if we were in a mass shooting you know like and we were going to a concert a few weeks later in real life and um, that's something my four-year-old always says he always goes in real life in real life <laughs> Real life. Like, you mean, it's like, like it really happened it would be it's nice like, if in real life sound was that cute all the time wouldn't yeah, it all the time in real yeah. life. <laughs> so now whenever i say it i just like give it in his voice he's like you know in real life in real life <laughs> like what other dimension do you live in? Um, <laughs> oh so, if we just live there that I happy know, place it would be is such a sweet little dimension um so i know my husband said last night he was like i think we made kids too sweet like, <laughs> i think we messed up i think the world to be that sweet yeah i know I to be that sweet they are they're very sweet children mm -hmm. it's like Oh, uh, we gotta rough you up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, get some sandpaper on you. Uh, so, uh, but anyhow, we were going to a show, and I thought, um, you know, is that even safe? Like, is that even safe? Mm -hmm. And so I decided, you know, after that show, or I mean, I think I'd start writing it right before the show that I would write uh, a book about a, a shooting that takes place at a concert. And, um, and it's no big spoiler alert. Um, and the main character becomes a widow very early on in the book and becomes part of the movement around gun control in America. Um, but it's all taking place in 2016. And I was writing it in 2016. And I had no idea how November of 2016 was going to turn out. Uh, like many of us, I was surprised, in fact, by those results. Um, horrifically surprised. Mm. And so, Ditto. Uh, and so uh, the book is really kind of became this period piece of what I think for all of us was this turning point of like, hey, like I can continue to live my life um, and not uh, and not say anything or just have personal political views that maybe I share on Facebook and with friends, or I can actually become an activist and actually can be a part of change. Um, and so that's, you know, that's a lot of what the book is about, but it's also about marriage and, you know, being middle-class and middle-aged in America and, and, you know, and it does look different, you know, for our generation where, I mean, my husband and I always sort of like, you know, it's like a joke, like you look at what people look like in their mid forties, like 30 years ago. And you're like, what? I look yeah. 20 years older than that. <laughs> yeah. You should yeah. hear the conversations in my house. I'm a little bit past the mid forties. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's wild in our generation, but I think there's like such a, like, you know, we're Gen Xers very firmly, my husband and I, and like, 
Like, I don't feel like I've, I'm wearing the same clothes I was wearing 20 years ago. Like nothing, like we don't change. Like my hair is the same, like nothing changes. We just never grew up. And, um, and so it's a lot about, it's a lot about like our culture too, of being parents and like kind of always feeling like we're playing at adulthood and never really feeling. And then, but, and then also about, you know, what happens when you do get married and have kids and how a lot of us have to sacrifice dreams and that sort of questioning about sacrificing a dream for that other dream. And how do you negotiate that? You know, how do you live happy when you know you're not living the life you were supposed to live? And, um, and so it's, you know, there's so, a, so there's some really powerful, powerful themes in the book. And actually that was one of the things that, that initially struck me was the idea of these two people coming together who had big dreams and big visions and, you know, big, and then you kind of, sometimes realize most people I would say realize that those big dreams don't usually play out the way certainly the way you think they're going to play out and that idea of of how can you find a place where you're at peace and happy and still feel like you're contributing at least something towards that that end goal or we're somehow living in that world but having a what most of us would call a rather normal ordinary life yeah but the other piece that enters into that is no life ends up being ordinary because yeah. something happens, something. Yeah. And this is where I think the idea of you telling these stories as stories mm-hmm. um, are really allow people to kind of connect with that and recognize the opportunity for and perhaps the need for activism in their own lives. And it doesn't necessarily mean jumping up and down and screaming on Facebook or, you know, pounding your desk or swearing or, or whatever, but that there are ways and effective ways to really get involved and to become an activist. And if you, you kind of lead with your heart that can take you in the place that you're supposed to go, where you can kind of maybe fulfill some of those dreams in another way that helps the greater good. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's, um, and I think it's also just, you know, having the consciousness around it of, of we can, you know, because of those external stressors, right? Because of those systemic demands or obstacles, it's really easy to just become focused on paying the bills, raising your kids, mm-hmm. trying to make the beds in the morning, like all the things that, that can clutter up a life. And how do you also still make space for creating systemic change or, you know, or, uh, or helping to save this planet or participating in social justice or anti-racism or, you know, whatever it is that calls to you in terms of like, where do I want to adjust or focus my efforts? Like, you know, but, but creating that space for those efforts Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, there's a reason why we have to work five days. I mean, I always say if we had four days a week, we would live in a different society because we would actually have the space to show up for these things, right. you know, and we'd also have the space to really question how the ways we're doing it. Are they effective or that are they not like we would have the space to do so much. But, you know, we only have two days off on the weekend and one of them is laundry. So we <laughs> It's always laundry. It's always what laundry. Happens? That's what I say. I'm like, what is, it's not even I have one day off. Because I work five days and then I have laundry. And then you have to, (laughs) (laughs) I totally, my husband and I are here. Our kids all moved out and we're here by ourselves and I'm still doing five loads of laundry a week. What, what happened? (laughs) I don't, I don't understand this. 
But, you know, to, to your to your point, the systems that we engage in to live our lives are almost designed to keep us from going further Absolutely. and thinking further and yeah. acting further because we are so constrained in just living. And certainly we're not all going out and, you know, looking for a looking for some buffalo or something to slay so that we can, you know, eat and all that stuff. But the systems are no less challenging and perhaps even more so because they become more complicated. Yeah. And it it is almost designed to keep us from thinking about ways that we can contribute because we just automatically assume that that we don't have enough time. But it's a choice. It ends up being a choice. And that's what I love about your mission. That's what I love about this book. Um, it all gives us the opportunity to step into that world of activism in a way that is accessible to us and allows us to see where we can contribute without becoming part of the screeching discussions or yelling that's going on today. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, again, it just goes back to there's a there's a gentler way to um, share our stories. There's a gentler way to create change and there's a gentler way to like you know, focus our efforts on um, uh, on building more justice in this world. So, um, if anything, we at least could start with a four day work week, and I think we I think we can all agree on that. So, oh, I, I think that would be that would be the one place to find absolute agreement. Let's yes. let's go there. <laughs> exactly, Kristen McGinnis. This has been a wonderfully enlightening, engaging, fun conversation with some really valid uh, points that I think our our listeners and viewers will take away from this. So I want everybody to find a copy, get yourself a copy of Live Through This. Live Through This. Show us the book, please. I want to see the cover. Let's show the book. There we go. Live Through This. And um, please check out Rise Books and Rise Writers. If you are an aspiring writer, check Kristen out. And Kristen, tell us where we can find all these goodies. Uh, you can find out more about Live Through This at risebooks.com. Um, and also, I'm not sure when this is airing. We have a tour coming up in New York, uh, LA, Ventura, Seattle, and Chicago. So certainly feel free to go to our links. There will be more tour dates coming down the road too. Um, and then uh, if you're interested in book coaching or in writing or publishing your book, you can go to risewriters.com. Um, at Rise Books, we also, I always have to mention, we have a wonderful hybrid imprint um, called Ascend Publishing, where you get all the benefits of working with Rise Books, including sales and distribution with Simon & Schuster, publicity, marketing, editorial direction. And if you also need a ghostwriter, we offer publishing packages through Ascend Publishing, as well as the curated list with Rise Books. So um, our goal really is to help everybody on their path to publishing. And if that means, you know, we help people to get agents, we help, you know, we help them the whole like traditional path of agent, traditional publisher, advanced coaching. Um, but we also try to help people on the path independently or through independent publishing. Um, so our number one thing is to help you find and tell your strongest story and then create your way to published author. I love all of that as a writer and as someone who is very much endorsing this idea of telling your story as a way to make the world a better place. So everybody that is listening or viewing this, please check out Kristen McGinnis, check out Live Through This, check out Rise Books and Rise Writers. And if you need a little bit more inspiration, you can head on over to brilliantlyresilient.net and sign up for our Brilliance Bit, which is our once a week 
little ditty that goes out talking about our, our guests on the show and bringing you some of their brilliance as well. And we can also bring Brilliantly Resilient to you on our speaking platform. So check that out as well. Kristen McGinnis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having Everybody, me. Everybody, we will see you next time on the next episode of Brilliantly Resilient Live. Thanks for tuning in to the Brilliantly Resilient podcast. Join our Facebook group and follow us on YouTube to be inspired with tools to reset, rise, and reveal your brilliance.